for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Okay, welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brian Kamalik, and today we have with us Claire Cousins. Claire Cousins is a former was former national president of the of the Australian Institute of Architects, the AIA, and spokesperson for the Hands Off Anzac Hall campaign. Claire Cousins also runs a Melbourne-based architecture um, and interior design practice called Claire Cousins Architects. Founded in 2005, I believe. The, the award-winning firm focuses on context, materiality and collaborative client-architect relationship with a portfolio including houses, residential extensions, retail projects and commercial projects. As a designer, Claire Cousins has been described as a modest leader and ardent collaborator. She's actively involved in the design community and feels even more passionate about the community nurtured through her work to which she titles her profession as a service. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Claire Cousins. Thank you, good to be here. So, okay, out of interest, why is your profession a service and not say a calling or as as, as we journalists call, call ours, a craft? Uh, yeah, it's funny, I don't know, we, I, I do remember saying that some time ago, you've dug up some old old quotes there. Yes, that's your journalistic um, prerogative, that's good. Um, no, look, I, I, I do think it, I mean, look, it's, the practice of architecture is many things, but one of the thing, one of it is, I do think there is a service to it, because um, architecture, whether it be for private or public clients, um, it should always um, think more broadly of its impact than just the direct client. So how, how does a building or a project benefit the broader community or the context that it lives in? And I think that uh, I think that's maybe something that a lot of people don't uh, consider architects. Maybe a lot of people might think architects are far more, and you know, perhaps some may be, but more self-serving. But I think good architecture is is much more generous than just thinking about the um, the, the the narrow brief, and that's where I think it is bringing service to a much broader, um, you know, the built environment itself, being responsible for the environment, but also the communities that the project's being built within. Okay, interesting. Okay, so how has um, you know the industry, the profession, um, weathered the um, the pandemic? I mean, how are things going from your perspective? Because you you have you have a rather unique perspective. You know, you are head of the AIA. You 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 run your own practice. Um, you're you're involved in a lot of things. So you, you, I guess you have visibility across a lot of areas. So how has the profession weathered this um, annoying, dare I say, pandemic? I think we've been extremely fortunate um, compared to so many other sectors that we've been permitted to continue working. You know, construction sites over on large have been still operating, um, but actually, particularly in Melbourne, um, I know with many of my colleagues, we're inundated with work at the moment actually so whether that be in the we, we work across a fairly broad range of projects so private housing and uh, we, we had to kind of close our books in January because we didn't have any capacity to take on any more work but also because we're doing quite a lot of um, affordable housing projects um, there's a, a huge stimulus program in Victoria at the moment of about five and a half billion dollars worth of affordable and social housing and so our practice has been kept um, very busy uh, working on on both private projects and um, larger residential projects so it's it's good good the industry is good I think um, it's it's almost too busy and there also seems to be a lot of 
there's a, there's a big push for um, education. So the BSBA in Victoria, the Victorian Schools Building um, Authority, they've got a huge amount of work under underway. Um, so the, the government's certainly pushing uh, a lot of stimulus and, and investing in a lot of areas that have not had um, sufficient investment for decades, such as social and affordable housing and probably uh, renewing um, uh, you know, private, well, sorry, state, um, state uh, education facilities in primary schools and high schools. I guess we can always thank God we're not in hospitality or tourism. Right? Correct, all the performing arts. I think that's my brothers in the performing arts and I really feel for all those sectors, it's very tough. Yeah, thank God I, I never studied modern interpretive dance. But anyway, <laughs> on that point, um, you know, you've been busy in a whole lot of other things and, and including uh, you know, with the, the, well, the ongoing controversy with the uh, Anzac Hall. So can you first tell me a bit about the hands-off Anzac Hall campaign? Who, what and why? Yes, I mean, it really started in November 2018. Uh, and the, at the time, I was the national president of, of the Institute of Architects, which is kind of why I've, I've remained in, involved. It, it has been a kind of long journey and there's been lots of... Um, lots happening along the way. And so it, it probably became harder. Uh, it's not usual for, the, for an ex-president to remain the spokesperson. It's typically the, the president of the day, but that, that's the reason why I've kind of remained involved at the request of the Institute. Um, the, the Institute first became aware that, um, got the heads up that the War Memorial was gonna make an announcement that Anzac Hall, uh, which was designed by DCM, um, was to be knocked down to make way for a new building. The thing that uh, struck us was that there had been that they had kind of launched um, and were about to kind of publicly announce this project with a kind of um, end result before actually going through the process of working out how to get there. Um, they hadn't consulted the the moral rights um, owner, which was DCM, and they hadn't done any public consultation whatsoever. Uh, they had been kind of working on various business cases behind the scenes. So as soon as um, the War Memorial Director, Brenda Nelson, uh, came out and announced it and uh, had secured kind of bipartisan support on the project of um, securing half a billion dollars for the project. Um, we, um, you know, made ourselves known to Brendan and were able to actually secure a, a, an appointment or a meeting with him in person uh, quite soon after. And he, he did take us through the um, that the process that they had run and the, I think there, I forget now, but there was kind of a, at least seven or eight projects or, or, or sorry, uh, schemes that they had explored. Um, and very few, I think, if not only this, the one that they were wanting to propose to proceed with was uh, required the removal of Anzac Hall. And what we were trying to advocate to the War Memorial was, um, you know, we, we acknowledge that uh, these public institutions need to um, be modernised from time to time. They need to be brought up to um, standard to meet um, equitable access um, and environmental reasons and spatial requirements. However, the, what was being proposed seemed to be very significant in size and scale and cost. Um, and that the fact that they were um, instantly jumping to conclusions that the only solution was to knock down a part of the building, A, firstly, that was less than 20 years old, that had been a, a public in institution and one that also, um, and I suppose on that finishing that point, that, you know, we feel very strongly that our, our public buildings should be, um, should be uh, conceived and um, really lasting 50 to 100 years. From a sustainability point of view, that's kind of appalling uh, and, and very poor leadership. For the industry and society as a, as a general you know, perspective. Um, but also the fact that they were jumping to conclusions that this was the only solution. And um, what architects 
uh, very good at is understanding what a brief is and actually coming up with different solutions. Um, and that we felt that that, that hadn't been properly um, uh, addressed uh, and there hadn't been any public consultation. And lastly, that also the heritage of the conservation management plan for the War Memorial site, clearly the original uh, building, which is over hundred years old, has what people would deem you know, traditional heritage value because of its age. It actually, um, Anzac Hall, which is much younger, was also integral as a protected part of the whole War Memorial. But the, the conservation management plan said that Anzac Hall should not be removed because that would significantly affect the heritage nature of the site. And there are plenty of modern contemporary examples um, of um, younger buildings being classed in that heritage because heritage is not about age, which it's often perceived to be. Heritage is also about social significance or cultural significance. Um, there's a whole layer of um, whole series of criteria that lead to um, heritage significance. And so Federation Square and, and Victoria is a good example. Also, I think the, um, the Art Centre in Melbourne, soon after it was built in the kind of 70s, was, um, was, was, was given heritage significance within, I think, you know, 15 years or so of it being constructed. And so when we raise these things, there seemed to be this complete um, lack of um, interest or uh, by the War Memorial in our concerns. And, and they, I suppose, kept um, dismissing us as a special interest group, that they thought we were being protectionist as architects, that we just didn't want one of our members' buildings to be knocked down. And that really was not the point. Um, what we were talking um, about was that uh, there should be a due process and that with public buildings, that, that our bureaucrats and politicians should be held to the kind of highest um, standard of that due, due process and that they should follow that. And they were not following that. How dare you, Claire, you're being protectionist. I was, yeah. I was going to say, look, you know, it's a $500 million project, isn't it? It's, 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 it's no small bickies. It's a, a serious amount of money. But um, you have, and that was, it was approved as of, was it two or three days ago from memory? Yeah. So there's, well. been, there's been kind of three um, phases it's had to go through. So they've gone through a, a public works committee where we gave evidence that which had a whole series of ministers that sit on that. It's then gone through the EPVC, the kind of through the environment minister, Minister Susan Lee, um, and and then it's just recently gone through the NCA, which is the National Capital Authority. The interesting thing I'd say about that second approval process is um, under Susan Lee, the Australia the Australian Heritage Council is sits within her portfolio, and they weren't that wasn't part of the process to be consulted. They're um, they're the country's kind of highest authority on heritage um, from um, traditional to um, built form to all sorts of heritage and they took it upon themselves they felt so strongly that they wrote a public letter and it was not part of the process they just took it upon themselves in their own volition to to write um, publicly about how strongly they felt that this uh, approach was going to have permanent damage to the to the war memorial and so Slowly what started to happen is while we were kind of early, while we were aware of these kind of challenges from the beginning and we were trying to raise it, all these other um, uh, voices, you know, from around Australia and particularly in Canberra, who were not architects, who came from all different kind of walks of life, um, even interestingly, quite a lot of ex-employees and former directors who, who understand the workings and the operation and how the War Memorial actually functions and what its, you know, uh, primary purpose was, uh, many, many people were questioning uh, the validity of this, this process. And then when the War Memorial started to um, decided they should probably do a bit of public consultation because there'd been so much crit critique that they hadn't, they would form um, 
often questions in their in their questionnaires that didn't really allow you to provide any negative feedback. But interestingly, in, in one of the, the surveys they did, 100% of current, current defence families had concerns with their potential heritage impacts. And so this is this kind of, there's this very interesting kind of um, dynamic, which we've, um, which a, a couple of uh, journalists have kind of picked up on. And it's, it's almost this, um, you know, the, 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 the sacredness that we, that we hold with, um, for our ANZACs um, and where the Institute has repeatedly stated that we have, um, you know, the greatest respect for our servicemen and women and that we have no issue with uh, the War Memorial undertaking some form of development and expansion. But there seems to be this kind of hot potato that politicians, that people go, oh, can't touch that, won't go against anything to do with the War Memorial because it looks disrespectful to um, our, our you know, servicemen and women, which is complete rubbish really, because it's completely, it's nothing to do with that. And a lot of veterans and current defence families have actually said, we think this is a ridiculous way to spend that kind of money. Um, while the War Memorial continually says it's not detracting from any of the funding that goes to defence families and veterans, it's on top of, but it's it's really questioning why does such um, a, a, an amount of money and this, and even more so now post COVID when we've got um, so many people in need, so many other institutions in Canberra and around Australia with leaking roofs and, you know, why is it being spent on this building? On that point, on, on things that were written, I mean, Crikey last week or earlier this week wrote that it's being turned from a place of solace to one of nationalism, um, which kind of doesn't really fit with Charles Bean's own description of, of his imagined memorial, which was, you know, a perfect, simple, solemn, exquisite building. Um, and, and, and on top of all that, um, you've said that, um, this is where I get to quote you again, you've <laughs> said that the, um, the approval has created a precedent that endangers every other piece of public architecture in this country. Wow, I was almost floored by that, by that comment. Um, can you please expand on that? Because that's that's a pretty big call, per se. Oh, and I we absolutely believe that. I think if if there are um, a series of um, processes that any um, development, particularly for our public institutions, need to go through, and in all three of them, we feel that there have been uh, you know failings um, in recognising absolute uh, public concern from many areas. Um, and that the fact that the, the War Memorial can kind of, um, you know, have these systemic failures in not following due process, what hope have we got <laughs> that, I mean, I know we all have lose hope and faith in our kind of politicians, you know, repeatedly. So it's, it's, not, it's not a kind of, it's, it's nothing new and sometimes depressingly not that surprising. But when we think of all of the, the public institutions that we um, feel so, uh, Proud of, and um, and and they are quite, you know, sacred spaces. Whether that be the Sydney Opera House, or in Melbourne the NGV, or whatever they might be in different states around the country, that or, or the even Parliament House, and that was something that went through some years ago with Parliament House. It had that challenge. Um, must have been after um, perhaps September 11, with security around that the fence needed to. You know, there was this this primary um, sort of you know, this, this secure, security need that the government felt was really important, which kind of completely went against the openness that, that the public, that, that sorry, that Parliament House always had. 
but there was at least a, you know, a process and there was a debate about it and you know they went you know and the, the again the moral rights holder of the who had designed um, Parliament House was consulted and there was a process that took place so there is always going to have to be um, change. The Opera House is going through trying to modernise some of its theatre spaces to better accommodate people with mobility needs. You know, you can't freeze a building in time. Change has to happen. But if we don't have processes, particularly, and we don't value our heritage, whether that be young or older buildings, that what have we got left? And it's, um, you know, and, and it's why do we, why do we as Australians, as we love to travel, why do we go to cities like Venice and Paris and Istanbul or wherever, because we are kind of captivated by the streets and the architecture and the spaces that we walk through. And it's because those, those spaces are so carefully protected with how they must be treated, how they must be respected, how they must be adapted over time as, as they need modernising. And Australia as a general does not, um, uh, you know, I think the so the public sector needs to be far more, um, you know, perhaps controlled. You know, I know we're all sick of kind of red tape and bureaucracy, but we need to have systems in place that protect those because too often our politicians are motivated by um, election cycles, you know, leg personal legacies. You know, our, our public institutions should be like uh, buildings that have been built and that they still stand and they have integrity 100 years later. Okay. That's, that is something that I've, that, I've, that I've heard a lot of people have said. Um, however, I want to ask you a bit of a devil's advocate question, um, if that's okay. So let's say, okay, is there, is there also a possibility that, that there is a bit of, I mean, for want of a better, better term, a bit of nimbyism going on here as well? Because I know that, that that's a big thing in Sydney, as you know. I mean... You can't build anything here because because it just you can't because it'll be different and no one can cope with that. Okay, uh, unlike Melbourne, of course, because you know I mean Southern Cross Station, for example, the the roof. Um, I remember when that was when that was open. I I, I went to Melbourne and I wasn't even on this on this publication, but I, I remember looking at thinking, nope, you could never build that in Sydney because you'd have about ten million people complaining just because they can. So yeah. isn't it? Could there possibly be a bit of that going on as well? And is there also a possibility that I guess there's that there's also maybe a fear of of well, not, not so much a fear, but you know, society has kind of been changing very rapidly over the past few years, and a lot of the let's let's call them traditional things that 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 we all I guess expect or take for granted or whatever the, the, the term is are kind of going out, out, out the window. Is there a bit of that as well? Um, or is this just, as you've put it, um, a real, you know, um, how would I say, a reaction to a, a process that, that, that perhaps has not been thought out well? Um, no, look, and I, 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 it's a good question. And I think it's always good to look at it and, you know, from the, from the other side. Um, I, if there's certainly none of, it's none of that uh, nimbyism. I think we have a lot of that in Melbourne too. And just, I suppose, quickly on that, I think sometimes you can understand where the general public get that fear of development and change because they're so frequently exposed to such poor outcomes, built outcomes, because I think, you know, I would, yeah, that's another whole podcast, you know, of like our procurement systems and there's such a vast, you know, the vast majority of what is constructed is substandard and no wonder people are terrified of development in their, in their area because 
the, you know, the, the quality and the longevity and the, you know, integrity of projects is, is, is not up there. And, and that doesn't mean that they need to be expensive projects. They just need to be well considered. Um, with, with um, and then, and then I suppose taking the angle of, you know, are we, is this group, this broad ranging uh, group of objectors just being traditionalists that, you know, change is bad and nothing should ever change. There are so many good examples of, I mean, the state, um, library in Victoria, which is absolutely significant. I think it's the biggest reading room in the Southern Hemisphere. It's a remarkable building, has just um, undertaken a huge redevelopment. Um, I'm yet to have visited it because it only opened, you know, just at the end of last year. Um, but that that has been kind of celebrated in, um, you know, in the awards, and and so that that has undergone significant change. Similarly, uh, I'm speaking from a kind of a Melbourne perspective, but um, the the NGV. Uh, sorry, the, the Art Centre Melbourne is about to undergo very large developments um, and, and redevelopment to modernise, you know, their, their hydraulic systems are, you know, failing and everything, you know, that starts to fail after 50 years is kind of starting to, and, and it needs to be modernised and, and that's a, a you know, huge project. We have no, clearly as architects, we, um, and the Institute being that it represents 12,000 members is uh, very supportive of architects, the projects that they do and, and the benefit that architects bring to all of these projects. Um, we're very uh, conscious that we, we don't want to talk about the work involved or the architects involved. That's actually none of our focus. It's actually the whole before phases of what the client has, uh, the, the war memorial, A, what their aspirations, what they have set, which seem to be um, unreasonably large, you know, and you, you touched on before that kind of this, the, the, um, the kind of the solemnness of the memorial, that there have been many people with a lot of experience with the War Memorial that have proposed various solutions um, where the um, there could be um, part of the museum, you know, um, located offsite, which would cost significantly less at the Mitchell storage facility where there's already a lot of the War Memorial's um, uh, artifacts, or there's even been discussion or suggestions of it being behind the, the War Memorial, um, where there's bushland to the rear, or that even on other locations of the site, or that, that it, the questioning doesn't even need to be as big because every public institution that, that displays objects, um, I've had the privilege of going down into the Art Centre um, permanent collection, which is enormous and, and very vast, and all institutions have to deal with rotation of artefacts and, and that's just, no one, no one can display everything. So, you know, I suppose, you know, we're, we're trying not to get, we've just highlighted some of those as suggested alternatives, you know, questioning does it need to really be that big? And even if it does, are there kind of, there are so many global examples of memorials and museums being complementary spaces. They don't have to be merged as one. And there is something about the scale and even the fatigue that people feel when you're moving through a space. It's like the Louvre in Paris, you cannot, you can barely do it in a day or you just scratch the surface. So it's that there is, um, we have no issue with um, a development of some sort and for some modernization, you know, mod some mod appropriate modernization. And, and there's a whole lot of positive elements that can come out of this project. But the, the process in saying that, that there's a fate to complete at the beginning that we're knocking down the building and now we'll go back and work out what the building looks like is ridiculous. And that's basically what they did. They went out to a public um, EOI and called for architects. And in the brief, as part of that call to architects to, to submit for the, for the work, they said, this is the brief and Anzac Hall should um, be knocked down. It wasn't, this is the brief, tell us what you can come up with. And so that was the fundamental, that they kind of, we, we 
um, raised that during the EOI process. They quickly slipped in another line to say, oh, actually, if you want to keep it, you can. But you could tell that that was kind of, you know, done at the last minute. But the original EOI that went out said that Anzac Hall was to be demolished. And it just, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy, you know, that it's, you know, it's not how you go about um, uh, seeking design input uh, and and kind of coming up with design solutions by actually, you know, starting off with the, the answer that you want, not not perhaps the, the best answer and solution for the public, for the building and, you know, for the future of the building and the institution and organisation. So in terms of where you are now, where, where this process is now, are there options? I mean, are there options of, of appeal? Are there options of, um, of, of anything? Or, or, or is it, as you say, is it, is it a fair complaint? Well, I think, we're, I suppose we're deciding, we've decided to use this as a kind of um, a case study, you know, a shining light to demonstrate what can happen and why this should never happen again with um, with these public processes. So, um, unfortunately, the the most recent decision this week with the National Capital Authority, um, again another you know kind of an amazing um, uh, decision was that they the War Memorial submitted an early works uh, package for approval, and so that you literally had to dig into it. It was talking about removal of trees, building temporary car parks. Oh, and actually demolishing Anzac Hall. <laughs> so, and so they're like, Let, let's get the approval of that because it actually jumps through a few, a few less hoops because it was a smaller pocket of money, maybe sub, I don't know, maybe under 10 million or whatnot. There was a, a smaller threshold. And so it pushed through. And there was over 600 submissions that the National Capital Authority went out for public consultation. There were over 600 submissions to this um, outrage. Only three were positive. The others were against um, were against this and had serious concerns. Um, the National Capital Authority made a decision within a couple of weeks, how they can adequately review over 600 submissions within a couple of weeks and say, don't worry, we're gonna get them to plant extra trees. They have to be a bit mature. Didn't comment really on the demo demolition of Anzac Hall. And now the next process that the War Memorial goes through is, oh, will the National Capital Authority allow, they'll be assessing what gets built, you know, because that the, the irony is they have not even approved the building that's looking to replace it, but they're saying no problem, you can knock this down though. So it, it's it's unbelievable. It really is. It's I mean it's a it's it, you, you I don't know you can sound a little bit speechless because <laughs> you just think I don't we just actually don't know how um, that process is allowed to happen. Mm, it sounds yeah it doesn't sound like a very very thorough process, but. Um, on that point, you've given a couple of ideas, but let's let's assume that Claire Cousins Architects have been granted, you know, um, imperial authority to do whatever they like in terms of the redesign or the rebuild of, of, of the War Memorial um, without any constraints, without any, you know, any oversight. And you're, you're basically, uh, what's the, uh, the, the, uh, the American legal term? Queen for a day, I believe it is. Right. Um, um, so what would you do? Well, what would be your preferred process, um, design and outcome? Oh, I think, I mean, it's a, um, the big challenge is it's not my, 
you know, I suppose all architects can approach and have, you know, um, a solution on how they would approach things. It's a very complex project. Mm. Um, it's not our area of expertise in, in this, this, you know, and, and this, is, this is why a project of this nature needs so much thought and, and thought with the client. This is not about saying, oh, architects should just impose their ideas. This is where the client and the architect and the, the, not just the architect, the whole consultant team, you know, there's so many people that go into these projects from engineers to sustainability and, you know, um, all sorts of people that, that it, often these projects, they're quite iterative. You don't just come back and go, bang, bang, this is what we should do. This would solved everything, you know, and, and that is, I mean, while there's great positives to ideas competitions, the, the negative to them is, and, and because, sorry, just to finish that thought, that the good thing sometimes with those ideas competitions, which are very popular in, in Europe, um, they've often launched very young, you know, um, new, younger practices with design thinking and kind of propelled them to be able to work with bigger practices. But with very complex, um, complex briefs, complex sites, the idea of actually imposing a design and then having to kind of then be appointed and then go and start working with the client to me is kind of madness. You know, it should be um, a, a lot. There has been a bit of a, a kind of a move recently with some very large institutional clients, and we were um, we got down to the last couple on on one particular project, which was had a similar budget of about half a billion dollars. We were part of a consortium. Was that they didn't actually want the architects to design it. They actually would work the, the, the process to selecting the, the, the design team was actually trying to find the best design team that had all the requisite skills. And then you actually, once they were appointed, the project is designed very much hand in glove with the client and with the stakeholders. And that's how it should should work. So the architect shouldn't just be imposing the, the, the big idea necessarily, but it's also that the the, the client, the war memorial, did not. Um, they basically kind of, they, they, like a good project needs a very good brief and, and a very a clear brief and a clear way of working. And sometimes the brief needs to be able to be interrogated and different ideas kind of tested. Um, and, and that's where that kind of, you know, good working relationship can really be very fruitful. So I know I'm kind of not really answering the questions because I actually don't think you can say, well, I would do this or I would go underground or I'd move it somewhere else. You know, it's, it's a, it's an, these kind of projects are very iterative and they need a lot of investigation and a lot of testing and a lot of consultation. And unfortunately, the consultation hasn't been there. The client set a very limited brief and dictated a particular direction, which is what the architects have followed, which is because they've, you know, they've been appointed and that's what the, that's what the brief asked for, the ANZAC hall to be removed. So it's, it's failed from day one and with all of the um, critique and advocacy and consultation that we've had back with them, with the former director and the current director, um, there's almost this kind of ego to say, well, we're not wrong. We're, we're, we've decided we're going to keep, keep going with it. They could have said, oh, actually, maybe we did get it wrong. Maybe well, let's open it up and let's be a bit more um, open and let's see what, what comes out of this process. They're ultimately still the client. They ultimately still get to the custodian of this building. They still would get to absolutely guide the process but they need they've gone about it in a very um kind of underhanded way it seems and it, it seems like that there was they knew what they wanted at the end and they've just bulldozed their way through to get that result and they've not thought of any of the consequences and didn't feel that they should be responsible to respond to any of them that is an absolutely beautiful um statement they haven't thought of the consequences and that brings me to my last question and a non-design one but still to do with this so this decision 
comes on the heels of a couple of rather interesting and dare I say depressing Royal Commissions, one on Australian Australia's um, or certain behaviours of, of Australian troops in Afghanistan. Mm. But we also have obviously our withdrawal from that country after after a whopping 20 years um, uh, in the place. And we actually have now, well, we're seeing journalists now openly questioning why on earth we were there in the first place. Possibly what they were, possible most people were thinking 20 years ago. Um, is Do you think that perhaps that the same kind of, you know, damn the, you know, damn the consequences type of attitude, um, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, what, 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 what's, what, how we've seen, how we've seen, how we perceive attitude has, has come across, how we've seen those two examples is coming across in this NCA um, decision. Is, is there perhaps some sort of a continuation of, of that kind of, dare I call it, bloody mindedness? Um, oh, look, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, I often say I would hate to be a politician, you know, like as in trying, you know, I don't know, you've got to be so thick skinned and I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I think being in those very senior leadership roles, leading a country and making such enormous decisions of, you know, whether a country goes to war and the, and the complexities of allies and, and relationships and all of those kind of things, it's, it's way way above my um, ability to kind of comprehend making those decisions. But um, I think, yeah, so, so drawing a parallel, I think I find difficult, um, but, but at the same time, I, I, suppose, I suppose we're really disappointed in the, in the NCA in that we, we actually went and met with them a couple of years ago. Um, I personally being Melbourne based, haven't, haven't had much, you know, much to do with them, but a lot of, my colleagues who have been um, instrumental, so the ACT chapter, um, it was Philip Leeson, the, the ACT president at the time, it's now Shannon Batterson, and um, our Canberra uh, National Policy and Advocacy Team, which happened to be Canberra-based. So they all very, um, you know, know many of the people on the, you know, who were on the NCA and understand that process. And really, the NCA's role is to kind of approve and to ensure that, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, quoting it verbatim, I don't know exactly what their, as in, I, I don't know their mission verbatim, but their role is to approve projects and developments within the national capital. And I, they, you know, I suppose we're all baffled as to why a project like this can, that why there just seems to be these kind of, you know, hoops that, that um, a project needs to um, achieve um, and that they just keep sailing through. So it's, I don't know, I haven't probably answered the question very well. It's, but it, it is baffling that, um, I don't know, like we, we just don't understand why there is, um, the, 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 even due process. I think, I think you know, we, we were unsurprised that the war memorial was kind of using all these kind of different tactics, but then we had still had faith that the, that the, that the um, approval processes would be managed properly and that that, that would bring, the development back into line. And that's what's also been so disappointing. Um, it's not just the disappointment with the War Memorial, it's also um, the bureaucratic processes have also failed. I think you actually have answered the question perfectly, Claire. Okay. Um, you know, for all three questions, you know, the the, the two words that, are, that stick in my mind is baffling and failed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. Uh, look, Claire Cousins, thank you very much for your time. That was both interesting and, dare I say, depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to, no, to be so depressing, right. but it is. I think it's. It's. Uh, thank you for having having me, and it's. It's important for more people to know because I think we we need to 
not roll over and not just accept what our bureaucrats and politicians decide is right. We need to kind of make sure that we stand up for it because otherwise it'll all be gone. Okay, Claire Cousins from Claire Cousins Architects. Thank, thank you very much again. And until next time, you've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic, and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.